We're continuing our study on not only on life of David, but heart of David as we are understanding that uh, David is known as a man after no, God's, known, God's own heart. So today's story comes in the midst of his life as a fugitive. And if you remember, because of King Saul's jealousy and his almost lunatic-like desire to get rid of David for his throne. And today, as you saw in the title, the sermon of the title is Saving the City of Keilah. The Keilah was in the middle of Judea, obviously. But there are a few things that we need to know first in order to appreciate the entire story. Here's the first one. It was when David and his men were still hunted by King Saul and his army. So they were already feeling very insecure. Remember, they 400 men, and not well-educated winners of the society, but the people who are broken, betrayed, and rejected by the society gathered. And David became the commander of that, 400 people. And obviously, as we read to the story, it wasn't easy for them to decide. As I was reading this story, it felt like a, reminded me of a saving private Ryan. Remember that? What a wonderful story depicted in a movie like that. And equivalent of what's going on, the impossibility and danger was all there, just like that Saving Private Ryan movie. Secondly, what was going on? It was a early summer, which meant there's a harvest season of barley and wheat, and Philistines raided to the city of Keala to rob the harvest, basically. Now, why does it concern David? That's the really good question, underlying thing. Remember, king of Israel, king of Judah, is still King Saul. David was, in chapter 17, anointed by Samuel, but it is it was still private and it was in the heart. But in several years, King Saul went astray, but and yet his relentless will to keep his throne was getting even stronger with jealousy. So who was responsible for his people? Keilah was part of Judea, which meant the Israelites. And then Keilah is right next to Gath, which is the Philistine land. And during the harvest season, they came literally just to rob. Thirdly, Keilah was a citadel, which meant it's a city within a castle. So it was dangerous to be trapped. Once you go in and then Saul's army right behind you, you're you're trapped. And Saul was so glad to know, to let to hear that David and his men went into Keilah. He said, a city with gates and bars. God had handed him to me finally. No, God didn't. He, He just evil desire to get him was there. 
And lastly, from this point on, um, coming out of as a community, a, a Dolem community with 400 people, these people travel as a fugitives through the wilderness. Wilderness is basically desert, open end. There is hard to hide anywhere. And then if you go a little further, there's the Philistines. And if you go the other way, King Saul is chasing you. That's the context. Okay. Let's do a couple of things as we begin. We want to know what happened. This one, maybe the chapter is long, so I might not read the whole thing. But try to read as much as we can. Just capture the four things that happened in saving the city of Keala. And then let's draw lessons from that. Here's the first thing that happened. First conversation. Conversation with what? With who? Conversation with God. These are the things that seemingly so uh, automatic when you read the Bible. But this is very exceptional things. What makes kings, what makes David a man after God's own heart? Look at verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against the Keilah and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Remember, the Philistines were just strong, advanced equipment and men of war. Verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So last verse is included in our first conversation because it gives a little clue as to how this conversation was going on. Remember, uh, studied, studying Book of Exodus, the high priest to wear their garment, the linen, and on top of that, ephod. In the ephod, there's a pocket, and they have a gemstones, Urim and Thummim. Scholars don't even clearly know how that works. It sometimes will say that as they pray, inquire of the Lord, one of the stones will lighten up, literally. That's how they know. Or they say they put their hand into the ephod, but we don't know where the pocket is. The one of the stones will come out so clearly that it is a direct answer from the Lord. So it wasn't just a kind of casual walking around and asking questions and God answered, oh, I wish I could have that. So people who, with this in mindset, they go to fortune teller. This is not how you... We seek guidance as a Christ followers. It's a relational guidance, relying on our personal walk, walking with the Lord. That's the expression, right? So David's motive here 
is crucial. Why bother? Why doesn't why doesn't he just stay put and focus on staying safe away from King Saul? The word is responsibility. It's just merely implied here. But he felt responsible for, compassionate for, the people of Israel. The people of Keilah was his people. Not yet, because he was not official king yet. The king, positional leader, is still King Saul. But his heart was ready. He acted like a spiritual leader already. When, when the scripture says, very difficult words for the modern people to hear, submit therefore to your husbands. And as if it, the wives subordinate, lesser than husbands, not at all, because right before that passage, submit to one to one another. That's the principle of the context. But whenever you think about this subjection or submission, the biblical concept is really the triune God. Do you know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal in all sense, but different in their roles. And they are happily indwelling, harmonizing, perfect harmony, mutual adoration happens in divine way of Holy Spirit always lifts up the name of Jesus and submits to the Son. God the Son submits to the Father. It's the question of this responsibility. Husbands, listen to me. Are you responsible for your family? Or are you easy to say, it's not my fault. It's my kid's fault, my wife's fault. Do you know, even if it's their fault, God knocks on the door asking for a husband? Because what it, that's what it means to be spiritual leader. I feel fearful because God knocks on our door. He asks for pastor. Not because I can't control everyone here. But I am responsible. That doesn't mean the women are excused in all things. In every section of your family and your work and your circle of community, do you take responsibility not because of positional leader? Oh, I'm not a woman's group leader. I'm not a home group leader. So let's so and so do it. But if you care enough, you will be a heart leader. Even if there is loss, and danger, and risk. Or I long for the day that our our Crossway Church members are fully mobilized for the kingdom of God. The building of the body of Christ, everyone is involved. And that's why one of our values is every member ministry. But in modern church, only few people who has a public gift stands around and the rest of people just sit and watch and need more exercise. Notice another one. David asked God twice. Oh, by the way, the Abithar being only one survived through the massacre in Nob. 850 priests and his fam- their families were all killed by Saul. And Abithar, only one surviving, and bring the ephod. 
was God's provision for this kind of guidance happening. But he asked twice. First time, first time around, shall I go? Obviously, for his conviction. But the second time around, it was actually not for him, for his men. We're going to draw a lesson a little more later, but just think about this. His patience, his consideration of his followers, his readiness to wait until they're emotionally, spiritually ready. Oh, I felt so convicted because I, I tend to yank people and if you're, if you're pushed by me, I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to be a better leader. Second thing happened, obviously, second conversation. This time, will the men of Keila surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? Remember, David and his men risked their lives to save the people of Keilah. And then David is worrying about their betrayal. Verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And, the, and Saul said, God has given, me, given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war and go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abithar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city of city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said he will come down. First bad news. And there's more. Verse 12. When David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David, his men, his men who were about 600. Remember, they used to be 400. Now, it increased to 600 people arose and departed from Keilah, and they went whenever they could go. When Saul was told David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the hill of country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So first thing that David did habitually as the commander of 600 men he didn't strategize, strategize or he didn't come up with a practical in pragmatic solutions Is there something wrong? No, nothing wrong. But the order is. There's an important lesson here. When you decide to take up on a, a new business endeavor, a new move that you're doing, a new plan for your family, do you go online first or do you go to God first? Do you ask him, Lord, what is your will in this? What do you desire? 
to see. David was determined. So this is a subtle thing that we could look over. But he's turning to God and asking questions. So notice that even the, the writer of 1 Samuel depicts this conversation as the centerpiece. The events are there, but the events are not the focus. They're, it's conversation in that, in the stories, are actually the focus. It's so easy to come up with our plan, come up with our strategy, and come up with our action steps and go to God and ask for approval, blessing. Or when we cannot solve anything pragmatically and there are no one to help with, and then we finally go to God. It's better than nothing. But still, the order is there's a, something very fundamentally wrong about this kind of life, which is so rampant, but key to transformation and joy in the Lord is the shift of center. In Jungmi's story, it's actually the story of shifting of the center. Are you in the center or is God in the center? Is God one of the many options and he's a very, very good, helpful person? Or is he actually has all the keys in your house and your key in your car? And is he in the, sitting in the driver's seat and you're asking for what next, Lord? And once again, the shift of center is different from seeking fortune teller or some kind of horoscope, whatever that you, you are familiar with. Why? Because you are still in seeking for all those, even you know, the management of advice or the experts' advice, you're still in the center. His focus is solely on what the Lord says him to do. That's why when things go south, he's not messed up. He's still stable. The street smart people can calm, be calm, or I should say even Christians who are Seeking those second things first, rather than God as his first thing, can be really calm and joyful when things are going well. But what about this kind of thing? You just risked your life and save the people of Keilah, and they're betraying and telling King Saul about where you are? Will People of Keilah, men of Keilah, surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul. And the Lord said, they will surrender. Notice that David did go, oh no! They can't do that. God, punish them. No, he was calm. He actually knew about Almost 99% knew they were going to do that. Why? What happened to Nob? The people of Nob helping David just a little bit, 850 people are killed. And he cannot blame. He doesn't blame the people of Keilah. Or the Chiffites are a little bit different. Because they actually went away, went around, or out of their way to tell King Saul that that's coming up in the next. I hope you are thinking and provoked. But lessons coming, we're going to summarize in a few minutes. 
Third thing happened is Jonathan's encouragement. We already covered this when we think about Jonathan's friendship. Um, but actual context is in this story. So let me just briefly say, and summarizing Jonathan's encouragement is a... Ah, that's the wrong... I hope some other one. Sorry about that. Summarizing Jonathan's encouragement is um, verse 17, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan's encouragement was to strengthen David's hand in God. Literally, the expression, but the meaning of that expression is strengthen David's faith in God. But notice how we encourage each other. We uh, kind of talked about that in our quiet time training. It, you know, when you say, oh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not good enough, or, I'm, I don't look good enough, or I don't do parenting well enough, and all that, and then we, we will say to that friend, no, you look beautiful. You, even our kids, right? You're so cute, and you could do better than this kind of, those kind of a pragmatic solutions. If you do this, did, they, did Jonathan do that? Jonathan, David, you know my skills in the wilderness as a warrior. And I want to encourage you, if you go this way or that way, and if you do this, you could get away. Don't worry. Or just a positive mental attitude. David, be positive. Sun is bright. You be positive. He didn't do that. He pointed to what the Lord already has said. Look at verse 17. Do not fear, though, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. How do you know? Because you shall be king over Israel as per the Lord himself. And I shall be next to you. So my father also knows this. God's sovereign providence is here. Oh, we need these kind of friends. The friends who could come in to our lives when we are, our knees are wobbly and our hands are weak. Our head is not clear. Those friends who come in and strengthen our faith in the Lord, who boost our faith in God. Don't give up. Hang on to God. I'm not just merely saying the words. I'm saying causing our heart to pay attention to God, who is sovereign, who is almighty who keeps his promises. How about turning the other way around? Are you that friend who doesn't just do PMA or practical solutions or referrals, but as as you pray for that person you genuinely strengthen their faith. We need to be that friend. And David has a sign of strength and faith. The next verse is coming up. This is the last time Jonathan and David saw each other. You know, Americans were so wrapped up 
and preoccupied the super, about the superhero. Um, and even reading the Bible, we could do that. David is everywhere. Obviously, David is a type of Christ also, too. The, the, the father of generations of the son of David who will become the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we ought to pay attention to people like Jonathan as well. I deeply admire and respect Jonathan. Jonathan seems like almost like a Barnabas in relationship with Paul. We hear Paul's name everywhere throughout the New Testament. But some people don't even know who Barnabas is. A, a friend, genuine friend, who took second seat to encourage his friend for the kingdom of God and glory of God without jealousy. Third thing that happened is God's intervention. The phrase that directly from the scripture is, therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. Verse 19, when the, then the Ziphites went up to Saul and Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horash on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to your, all your heart's desire to come down. And on our, our part shall be to surrender him into king's hand. Their next step further than Keilah, people of Keilah, right? And Saul said, he's very pleased, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Go make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is and who has, been, who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all thousands of Judah. And they arose and went into Ziph ahead of Paul, ahead of Saul, sorry. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of man, and a, a rabbi to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told he, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of man. At least the rocks can cover them or hide behind them rather than plain field of desert. When Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of man. Saul went to one on side, one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his, his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land, which is God's intervention. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against Philistine. Therefore, the place is called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is really kind of picturesque, almost like a movie scene. You could kind of picture Saul's army closing in and David is going the other way. It's like a playing a hide-and-seek kind of thing. But in a, just think about the heartbeat and terror 
the, the massive Saul's army is right behind you. And then Saul thinking that just in any, any minute, we're going to catch him. And then God's intervention happens and he gets the news. Philistines made a raid against us. King Saul, we need you. And he returns. If you're a Ziphite and made that uh, kind of betrayal and, and Saul's really a relentless pursuit to kill David, considering all this, without Jonathan's encouragement in the faith, they, David will just go crazy or even give up. His heart, his faith was in strengthened, but at the same time, what, what was he doing? Psalm 54 has his heart. He's a journal in a prayer again. So we'll get to that in a minute. But what he's doing is a turning to God in the midst of danger, in harm's way. Isn't it so comforting that because of David's troubles that we have languages now? And I still remember even as a college student or my younger days, even nowadays, I would confess in the middle of the night, Lord, you are my rock, my fortress, and I will not be shaken. Even all these things happening around me. And let's remember our spiritual amnesia, which is a default mode of our heart. And David and his men made a mark for their remembrance. They call this place the rock, the rock of escape. So, there's so much more to be said, but I want to keep our focus on getting, learning the lessons. Here's lesson number one. The, these lessons about wilderness lesson uh, in one sense uh, several stories ago the wilderness was a, a symbolic to our modern life of difficulty trials and hardship yes still is but the wilderness in this sense is a wandering around our life is itself is a wilderness and the, our final destination is our Father's home, Heavenly Father's home. And He calls us. But in terms of journeying through this journey of life, what are the lessons? Especially life is difficult. Lesson number one offers a crucial lessons of God's guidance. The first and foremost lesson of wilderness is on guidance. And I know many of you are saying, oh, I got it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on the understanding. And all you is acknowledge him and he will direct your path. I learned that uh, during my 30s. And some of you say early 40s. I learned that. I, I, who among us can say, I mastered. I know how to be guided by God. And that's when we fall, don't we? As I mentioned, starting this church and taking a free fall and having experience of miracle after miracle, I have tremendous confidence in God's guidance now. But the moment that I am too confident and too 
assured of my own ability to seek guidance, and that's when things fall apart. So note, note that David does so well here, but in the future, he doesn't do the same thing that we're learning. Like a recurring lesson. But guidance is so important because when the shift of center happens, you're seeking guidance, the posture and everything is different. I hope you get this. Psalm 73, verse 23 to 24 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after, you will receive me to glory. David goes to this wilderness, to that wilderness. And he's asking for God's guidance. Here, at least in this story. But he forgets to do that, he gets in trouble in the future again. Remember Exodus study? We're taking a break. So we didn't go to journey with the Israelites into the wilderness further and to book of numbers. So I want to share book of numbers, a little bit of a preview that you will anticipate. Let's go back to numbers. How did the Lord, Yahweh, guide Israelites in the wilderness? If you count just a conservative time from Sinai, Mount Sinai, to Canaan, it takes less than 40 days. Even with the multitude, two point some million people. If you're just only very fit man, you could make it within few days, probably. Did you know that it took them forty years? Of course, because of their sin and lack of trust. But God's purpose of having them to do, oh, there isn't much a rec- record except their grumbling about water and God gives them and they're grumbling about food that God gives them manna, grumbling about meat, God gives them meat. But other than that, what, what in the world are they doing? There's a redundant passage in book of Numbers. The pillar of cloud is on top of the tabernacle. If it stops, you are to stay unpack and stay there. Sometimes it's just one or two days. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's a month, a year, or more. Sometimes within a day you have to pack again. The nighttime, the the pillar of cloud brightens the inside out. So they call it pillar of fire. There's a light comes through that in the middle. Everybody can see that. And then even the passage repeats. When the clouds move, you move. When cloud, the pillar of clouds stop, you stop. Just imagine that. You're just tired and cloud is keep on moving. Your, your toddler is crying and you know, throwing tantrum. Ah, no way and you are just exhausted, spent. So you have to go. You endure. It's like a marathon. And all of a sudden it stops. Finally. And you are unpacking everything. And you are taking a deep breath. Oh, this is better. Winning. And then somebody say, Pillar of clouds moving again. Not my time. I don't want to go. I'm not going. You can't do that. The whole multitude is following. What is God teaching them? Very simple lesson of the center. Who's in the center? Unless you shift the center, 
you will not learn to the fundamental relationship of guidance and trusting and none other than Larry Kraft, I would highly recommend Inside Out is a difficult book, to be honest. But if you go to just the chapter called The Problem of Demandingness, you could get the fuller version of this. Wonderful. I'm so glad God gave me that chapter during in the midst of my wilderness. It was so difficult. In, 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 um, I was 31, no sign of any kind of social life. I just moved from Texas, and my brother uh, had kidney failure. He's starting dialysis. Uh, I mean, he, waiting for the transplant, and his so-called fiancé left him, and to my one of my best friends. And all kinds of things. My, my, my dad... The terminal disease of fibrosis of uh, his lung cell, a hardening of lung cell. All those things are happening. There's some portion of Larry Krebs' writing in the problem of demanding his chapter in the book entitled Inside Out. The beginning of a proper response to frustrating circumstances is a clear recognition of who's in charge to handle frustration by reminding ourselves how much God loves us is a good second step, but not the first one. We must take our place as a creature, creature before our Creator, then explore the wonder of our Creator's loving character. An awareness of God's love casts out our fear, but subjection to his authority deals with our demandingness. I wonder if God is saying something like this. It is the context of the numbers uh, passage. I know my ways will seem to ignore your concerns at times. I want you to trust me when you are eager to serve and I put you on a hold. But you will never learn to trust me until you come to terms with my authority. God's sovereignty. Trust will never emerge from a demanding spirit. Let's start with a clear understanding. I give orders, the orders. You do what you're told. That's what sovereignty and the people who submit to the sovereignty of God looks like. With that as a beginning, you will eventually taste my goodness and the richness of fellowship within, with me and come to trust me deeply. When we are reading this, oh, I don't like that. Because of today's world, right? I give order, give the orders, and you do what you're told. Ah, oh. you know the word autonomy. We talked about this in um, a few months ago. In, in um, I think it's a self-denial series. The word autonomy is a, auto means self, nami. It means law, self-law, governed by his, your own self. When God created us, we are supposed to be governed by God, the creator. And the, the fallen nature, default mode is we don't like to be told what to do. You, you find out from your kids all the time, right? You tell them what to do, they don't like it. They always do other things. Your pastor doesn't like to be told what to do because I'm strong in my own eccentric stubbornness. Do you see that? You know, Jungmi's happiness come not because it's a mystery kind of things, but I'm so thankful for without 
the language of the shifting of the center happened. She learned to submit, to take the order without understanding fully, without being satisfied with her needs being met right away. We ought to do the same thing. I know some of the things that you're going through is tough, difficult, and annoying, frustrating, even heartbreaking. Submit to the authority of God, to his sovereignty. Trusting his goodness. Number two, wilderness deepens our trust in God's protection. Psalm 54 was written in this time, and I have glimpses of his words. And you may, you may want to, uh, in your own time, read the whole entire Psalm 54. It just fits so well and helps us. Verse 3, David writes, For strangers have risen against me, referring to Ziphites. Ruthless men seek my life, referring to Saul and his, his army. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. David not only learned to uh, trust in God's protection, what is he doing? He's experiencing God's protection. We ought to do that. We ought to have crossway stories coming naturally because of our experiences of God's protection. Not, not only God's guidance. Now, having said that, if God is sovereign and he protects us, why doesn't he just remove Saul's army, and no danger. There will be no danger. Remember, David writes in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the shadow of, I, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. And our pragmatic mind, our modern said, which, which is that our still center is on us, in saying, God, you're powerful enough. Why don't we just make a deal that no shadow, valley of shadow of death in my life, okay? <laughs> is it clear? You know why God does that? Unless we go through hellish experience, we don't experience God's protection fully. We don't express God's power and might and mercy and grace fully. So sisters and brothers, are you going through a tough time these days? Know that that could be the closest intimacy that you could have. God will draw near to you. Oh, that's my testimony too. In the bright sunshine and rainbows, I don't remember my memories of God's nearness is very random. But I still remember my dark valleys. I'm far better off physically, emotionally, environmentally than then. But I still miss that intimacy. God was so near to me and assured me protected me. Here's our last lesson. Wilderness develops our practical skills through God's training. 2 Samuel 22, 35-36, he sings a song of God's deliverance, like a psalm within the king, 2 Samuel. He trains, he writes, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. And don't interpret that allegorically. 
He literally means he becomes trained warrior. Oh, not only that, think about this. Dealing with these people, remember the leadership principle that I talked about? What I see is not only his responsibility, his gentle persuasion for his followers. He's learning to lead these very difficult, broken people so that when time comes and he becomes crowned, officially king, and he will actually resemble the kingdom of God at, at least a little bit of it on earth. God's providences, even if the minimal things and very difficult things, even, even the difficulties in parenting and difficulties in your marriage, God used that to train you to be better skilled. I, I joke about this with Algin. Back in my young, youthful, passionate, independent, I, I was a cocky guy. I was a youth pastor. But that church, I experienced horrible experiences with kids and with elders everywhere. So nothing is too surprising anymore. That church pre- prepared me. <laughs> and Elsie goes, you should be grateful for us. <laughs> Even now, what you're going through. My time's up, but so let me just win, say one more thing. In the nine years of leading Crossway, I had two crises. One little more personal, closer, about a year ago more so. And then the first time, several years ago, a few years ago, first time when we moved into this. Both times, the people who followed me felt my impatience. I've asked God. I have a conviction. Oh, just be quiet. Just follow me. Trust me. I know this. I actually even use that. Just trust me. Don't ask questions. Trust me. Come along with me. And if you're going to be in my way, I didn't say that. Get out of my way. Go away, kind of thing. But David asked. And he had a conviction. He waits until his men get same conviction and fire and courage and readiness to tackle this risky mission. Oh, this lesson was more for me than, than anybody. May the Lord help us. And may the Lord Give us a taste of that grace and protection and guidance so, we, so that we may be indeed God's men, men and women of God. And the church that retains the saltiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these lessons uh, and David's real life stories really resonate in our hearts. And as we seek your guidance and your protection and submit to your sovereignty, may we experience a deeper training that our hands will be more skilled, our leadership will be I pray that you will use us for greater impact and prepare us for the next steps. And I pray for especially the leaders of our community that they will become men and women of God, women of God. The people who are new, that, that they may taste 
the transforming culture, and the people who are going through a tough time, that you will encourage them and gently persuade them to put their trust and shift their center. We love you, Lord. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.